Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Welcome to episode 94 of Life Beyond the Numbers. I'm recording this snippet on Monday, June 27th, 2022, and the episode goes live on June 28th. And this is a slightly unplanned episode, or maybe it's an ahead of itself episode. I was originally going to air this as episode 95. But I've had to rethink my scheduling, mainly because last week I came down with COVID, tested positive for COVID for the first time. And I wasn't seriously ill, thankfully, or anything like that, but it has knocked the wind out of my sails a little bit. And my energy reserves seem to deplete quite quickly. So I had to make a call. Would I put out a new episode, which had to be edited, or could I put out something that already was available to me? And I went with the easier option. But before we get to the intro, I would just like to share some numbers. And I know this is life beyond the numbers, but sometimes it's good to look at the numbers too. And Life Beyond the Numbers reached a milestone of 5,000 downloads earlier in June. So I just want to say a big, 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 big thank you to everybody who has listened in at any point. Even if this is your first time to listen in, you are most welcome. And to those of you who listen in over and over and over again, thank you. You are most welcome. And I love that you keep showing up and keep listening. And if you ever want to reach out to me, always just feel free to get in touch. I'd love to hear from you, share your thoughts on episodes, suggest guests for future episodes, whatever it might be. And people are listening in in 78 countries. Well, when I say that, at least one person in 78 countries has tuned in at some point. And that's quite incredible to think about it, sitting here at my desk in Oxford with a computer and a microphone. And I'm really grateful. I'm glad that I started the podcast. I've kept it going and that people listen. And I hope that you continue to tune in. So for episode 94, 
I'm going back, as I said, to the archives and picking out episode 10 with Steve Haynes to play for you again. And maybe this is the first time you've heard this episode. Maybe not. But this is an episode that I go back to time and time and time again. There's just so much wisdom in Steve's words. And he is so enthusiastic and passionate about what he does that I could listen to him talk for ages and ages. And if you want to download the transcript of this episode, it's available on the website. And the transcript for the majority of episodes that have gone out in 2022 are available on the website, which is something I started to do quite recently. And I should say that Steve also is featured in episode 47, an episode on touch. But this episode is on this feelings business. And Steve, a body worker, has such a wonderful way with words. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did having the conversation and that I do listening back or reading back over the transcript. And I wish you well, wherever you are, until next time. Today we're joined by Steve Haynes out in Geneva. Steve, welcome. Excellent, I'm looking forward to chatting. Steve, you describe yourself as a body worker. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? Yeah, it's a really important identity for me. I support people with pain, anxiety and trauma by helping them connect to their body. So all of those um, features of suffering of people not functioning as or being as healthy as they'd like to, uh, I think can be really helped by getting good at the feeling business, by learning how bodies work and being skillful in how we relate to bodies. And my journey was I did a lot of sport as a kid and uh, I was a failed engineer and then started working with people with mental health problems. And I could have trained as a psychotherapist and I could have trained as a counsellor. And I've got some of my core friends from that time are still, you know, psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists, actually. But I was the one who went down the body route. I really got into yoga and this fascination that you can change people's mental health and emotional life by connecting to the body. I first learned that through my own yoga practice. And I uh, massage, shiatsu, chiropractic, craniosacral therapy, TRE are the tools I trained in very quickly. And it continues to be a big fascination for me. How, how far can we use the body to help us function better as human beings? When we think of using our body, I think of going for a walk or a run. But you're talking about more. Much, much more, really. So uh, uh, Descartes is often blamed for the split between mind and body, or he certainly articulated in a way that really crystallized for people. And it's tied in with religious notions. So there's a mind that might be equated with the soul and it might continue after death and is more than the body. And that's a, a rich strand in philosophy and in certain religious practices or spiritual practices. And very much minds emerge from bodies. And there's a strand of philosophy of embodied cognition. Our, our minds only exist by interacting with the world. And the medium we do that through is through the body. So minds and bodies are never separate. And the mind is completely rooted in, even if you believe mind descends into body, I don't believe that. I believe it emerges from the process of interacting in a world. 
but somehow the body is central and the root of um, all our thinking. So I, my teaching, my model is that emotions, thoughts and memory are all complex responses to a body that's engaged in a real world and trying to make sense of that world. Have you got an really example of how that works? Yeah, well, if you walk into your boss's office and your heart starts racing, the context is there's a person there who has power and that's important to us as a human being. But also that can happen for many people just walking into the building or walking into the, the space. That sets up all sorts of responses and physiology. So that's one example, maybe. Another very, very clear one is that uh, minds evolve for movement. So there's a sea slug that uh, initially it starts off with a brain or a nervous system that enables it to move. And then it swims around and it latches down onto a spot and its sort of tentacles become uh, like a mouth. They kind of wave food into it. But when it settles on one place, it eats its own nervous system. Now it doesn't need to move. It doesn't need a brain anymore. So we might say that the primary goal of organisms was to move and explore. And then we made sense of the world after we'd been moving. So brains and movements are deeply, deeply entrained. There's a Nobel Prize winning scientist who says 90% of the brain or the nervous system is involved in movement. So, and then we have this noise, consciousness is a little bit of noise on top of self-awareness, on top of this incredible ability to interact with the world, achieve our goals in the world of grabbing things, moving them towards us, pushing things away, exploring, contracting, withdrawing. There are all these are gestures that only make sense by, because we're embedded in a real world. And I think it's a mistake. Do you know the Golden Girls, that old TV program? Yeah. Do you remember that one? <laughs> there was, a, there was a, an episode there where, and it's still a, a theme, where we could cryogenically freeze our brain, uh, be separate from the body, and then at some stage, science will be able to plug into the brain, reconstitute us as a human being. I, I think that's an impossibility, actually. We are so embedded in a body and so dependent on a body and only exist by making sense and engaging with the world around us. That sounds quite complicated to get my head around. But if I think of my memories, which I believe I store in my brain, but if I'm listening to you, it's more like I'm also storing them in my body. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Brains are interested in doing things that are good enough. We're a bit lazy. We're kind of lazy, gloomy predictors. So memories, we stop when it makes enough sense that we can continue to feel safe in the present moment. So we actually don't want to remember, we just want to understand. And that's a very interesting twist on memory. But we have lots of information inside of our body. Uh, I, I have a favorite pair of jeans. You know, they're really old and wrinkly and they fit me like no other pair of jeans. My wife says they stand up on their own because they're so <laughs> old and gnarly. If you like, my jeans have memory. Uh, they have information. And that's like the muscles and the fascia in our body. It has wrinkles and twists. But my genes only make sense when Steve, the whole of Steve, my big brain gets involved. They have a particular explicit experience. All those wrinkles and folds make sense in a particular way when my big brain gets involved. So we have tissue memory, cellular memory, the habits of soaking up chemicals or excreting chemicals. And we have reflexes. All of that is sort of body memory. And we need our big brain to 
uh, track how things change and make sense of it and to make a good enough understanding it's okay to keep moving forward or when I'm in my boss's office my heart's racing a little bit and like you know all of that is memory and tissues and reflexes stored in my body and then my big brain is trying to make sense of it and it can order it and do creative things with it but essentially it starts as information changing in the world around me or inside my body but how do we deal with that racing heart or that feeling or emotion when we're in our boss's office well, first off, the, the time to learn how to fight a fire is not when it's raging out of control. So generally, we get people to practice beforehand. But it, um, you know, I'm really interested in trauma and when is it too much? And unfortunately, the literature on trauma is very clear that our social status and how we interact with other human beings is deeply, deeply important. Most trauma is actually human beings or power structures um, abusing the power that uh, they have over people. Clearly car accidents and war zones are important, but actually most of us grew up in unsafe environments and that's what triggers most of our defense cascades. So learning that um, it's life or death when we interact with other people, it's not casual at all, it's fundamental to our survival. And our status and our uh, acceptance by the people in our family and our social group and the people we have to work with to survive, you know, uh, and work is absolutely in that category is really, really important. So first off, to realize these things are important. And everybody gets triggered and everybody has responses to people who have power or potentially threatening. And then we learn that, you know, your boss isn't your dad or your boss isn't the person who, who attacked you. And being able to make those differentiations is important and you can respond from the present moment. And just learning that heartbeats can be quick for lots and lots of reasons, taking a moment to pause, to breathe, to soften your muscles, to prepare yourselves. A lot of this stuff is practicing being with intense feelings uh, in safe times, and maybe having a guide to help you do that, or meditative or yoga practices or Qigong or, or lots of ways, talking with your friends about this situation really triggers me trying to work that out and then practicing all of that preparation will really help you at that moment when you are about to give your presentation or you are about to go into a difficult situation. So really you can negotiate and practice and get better at feeling and you can learn to turn down the volume and be much more skillful in scary situations. And get your feelings to work for you rather than against you. Yeah, really nice phrase. My version of that was to have a feeling rather than become a feeling. If we, you know, we're not angry people, we are people who have anger inside of us. And that's a very different statement. And also is really much more in line with the current science in that emotions are complex responses to changes in our body. And a definition of an emotion is an action plan in our body, a readout of all these things that are changing and trying to adapt or prepare us to engage with the world. But it's always negotiable. We can always construct it differently. And mostly what we do when we have intense feelings is we often predict the worst case scenario and prepare for the worst. So we're very good at catastrophizing. We have a very strong negative bias as human beings that help to survive, but it also makes us a little bit more likely to be stuck in um, anxiety and pain and overwhelming experiences, unfortunately. 
Yeah, because I've read that the number one purpose of your brain is to keep you alive. Yeah, I like that. I'd also say for me, I phrase it, it's the, the biggest decision you're making right now is am I safe or not? So this notion of survival and being accepted by the people around me, not being threatened, absolutely, I would say we all have our uh, inner guard dog, our sort of threat detection systems that are checking constantly, consciously and unconsciously, is this safe or not? And if it's not safe, we go into defense cascades of fight or flight, so we speed up to survive, or we actually collapse and freeze internally, we kind of withdraw a little bit feel stuck and as though we can't. So my experience realizing that these protective reflexes can be happening unconsciously in the background is absolutely gold dust and really helps people if they know that if I go into my boss's office, I don't just speed up and get anxious, but sometimes I can freeze, I can go numb, I feel as though I can't speak. And that's all founded on your perception of am I safe or not? It's like, is this situation potentially dangerous? And if I'm in the habit or I've been scared in the past or things have happened to me where I felt powerless, some of those circuits might be on a hair trigger and they're really likely to kick in too quickly in the present moments. Sometimes I, I like the, the idea that we have this inner guard dog. So did you have a smoke detector when you were growing up, Susan? No, but we do now. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're essential these days. But when I was growing up in the 80s, we, we had to buy one in our, you know, our, our house. My dad hated it because it always went off when, the, when we burnt the toast. So in the end, he just banged it with a broom handle and it never actually worked in our house. But uh, unfortunately, most of our threat detection systems are a little bit like that smoke detector. They should only go off when the house is burning down, but they go off because they're too sensitive when we're burning the toast. And that becomes a real problem to live with this loud, noisy danger signals in our system all the time. It reduces, you know, it takes up resources and energy, it reduces our ability to feel safe, reduces our ability to relate, stops us from being creative and playful and stops us being able to rest when we need to rest. So if we can turn down that alarm signal and make it appropriately sensitive, then uh, that's a really powerful result of learning to feel and be skillful at interpreting the things that often feel a bit too quick and a bit too noisy and a bit too fast. A lot of what you're describing there sounds like stress. Yeah, very much. Um, in, in the business world, uh, stress is this sort of complex word, like we shouldn't get stress and it's seen as a little bit of a negative thing. You don't admit to it. But um, the sense that we get burnout, we have too much. Um, trauma and stress, absolutely a continuum. Trauma is, where is kind of often, was initially defined as overwhelming catastrophic experiences, war zones and people being attacked and sexual violence. But we've known that it's a low level accumulation quite often of small things, toxic stress, unbearable stress. It all goes down the same fear pathways or sort of defense cascades. So you fall off your bike on the way to work, you get a, a tax bill, you're arguing with your partner, boom, boom, boom. And your physiology, which we might call stress, goes into the same roots as if you're running away from a tiger. That's all a continuum. Mm. But the interesting thing is you can learn to, to understand that and to change it to, for the better. That's Very really much. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. If we get good at the feeling business, let's say sort of pain or a panic attack or feeling anxious or, or just... Um, 
just feeling out of sync uh, and really, really tired. All of these are sort of protective feelings, but often if um, there are kind of an eight or nine out of 10, let's say being anxious is your body screaming at you, your heart's beating fast, you're breathing really fast, your muscles are tight. This is an eight or nine out of 10, there's danger here something's not right and you need to pay attention to it. If you can learn to pay attention to the ones and twos and threes, the early little tingle in your belly, I'm feeling nervous, or the, uh, the slight speeding up of your heart, or maybe even it's just a little sort of contraction in the back of your neck. Did you ever watch Spider-Man? Um, well, I know the story. Yeah, Spider-Man had his sort of spidey sense that I was a kid, Spider-Man was cool. <laughs> so, you know, the little tingle, his spider sense. So if we can learn to feel these subtle signs in our body at ones and twos and threes, we begin to have much more choice. We have more nuance, more granulation. I'm not just angry or I'm not just anxious. It's I'm a little bit nervous or I'm getting a little bit irritated. I know that if I don't pay attention, that can quickly escalate and go out of control. Maybe, you know, me shouting at the dog or being in my car and getting really, really angry. This is an early warning sign that, that something's bothering me. And if I pay attention to my body, my churning gut, my contracting heart, my tight back muscles, maybe I can learn a little bit. There's some other things that are stressing me. It's not just the dog or it's not that person who cut me up. I'm carrying much more load. You know, I did fall off my bike and my back's a bit contracted and that hurts me and I'm worried about it. Or my deadline is actually really important to me and I feel really insecure. Or people aren't trusting me and I don't feel valued. All of those meta-narratives, people miss them because, uh, well, it, it's hard to include them in your stress response. Because we often feel as though we should just cope with them when really our body's gearing up for life and death strategies because of this uh, social status and stress response that can run us. So it might not actually be what it's about. If I get angry in the workplace for some reason with somebody who's handed something in late or whatever, it might actually not be that at all. I might be carrying it from something else and that just happened to set me off. Very much. Yeah, it's like your the cup is a little bit too full and there's no excess capacity. Um, another model you might like is you're in an airport. And I often work with a lot of women. So you're, you know, your husband's off and he's gone out to sort the car, but you're carrying all the suitcases and you've got two or three kids to deal with at the same time. And then it's, you're carrying two suitcases, pushing the trolley and the kids' bags. And then your child gives you another bag and you just collapse. Now, the problem isn't the little bag that they've just given you, the extra thing you have to load. It's the fact you're carrying all these other things and you're doing it on your own because notes, you know, the uh, the sharing of the load isn't happening and often those things the sense of injustice i have to do this on my own and the things all the other things you're carrying it's rarely the straw that broke the camel's back it's all the other things you're carrying mm. and you made reference there steve earlier to gut and what's the gut's role in all of this and when we talk about a gut instinct or a gut's feeling where does that play into this i mean is that some of my body awareness as well Definitely. In our language, there's all these clues that emotions aren't things that happen in our mind, they happen in our body. You know, we have broken hearts uh, and we're carrying too much load on our shoulders and now we have gut-wrenching decisions. 
and in our language, there's this wisdom that bodies are really important to emotion. I'm saying emotions start as physiological changes. But uh, these metaphors really tell us that uh, gut instincts are, are important things. So and there's really exciting science around this. So we, we think we just have one brain, our sort of big brain central nervous system within the skull and the spinal cord. Actually, have, we have a very, very complex heart brain, all sorts of sophisticated independent neural circuits around our brain. And we also have a belly brain. We have a huge amount of neurology uh, that controls independently reflexes and activity in the gut. Uh, so we have a brain brain, but we have a heart brain that talks to a brain brain, and we have a belly brain that talks to the brain brain, and it's a two-way conversation. And even more interestingly, we have this massive fluid chemical environment, and we have an immune system that is also a parallel intelligence inside the body. There's lots and lots of conversations. I like to think of consciousness as an orchestra playing a beautiful tune, and your gut might be the drums and heart is the violins and, you know, all these. And there's a conductor, a sense of self, maybe. But the music is a coherent activity from all the complex systems interacting. And we should honor just another one, not just the immune system, our gut and our heart. The other big one we've discovered is we have a whole host of uh, microbiome. We have a whole host of bacteria inside of us are really important in signaling our mood and uh, inflammation responses. So yes, you're more than, there's other DNA and other cells and other beings, I don't know, bacteria for the want of a better word, um, that are sort of involved in the conversation as well. And we have to learn to live with those guys, um, create healthy conditions and healthy, feed them to enable our whole orchestra to play a beautiful tune. But how do you do that? How do you keep the orchestra in tune? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, my simple things are keep moving. So exercise. Remember our brain uh, as an organism, we need to engage and move. So that's really, really important. And also the principle of action rather than inaction. We can do beautiful contemplative work. And I like that. But generally, if you do something, I like Sartre to be is to do this act of engaging is often um, just change something, call someone, move differently, uh, go for a walk, uh, change the space and engage your body. That's a very powerful thing. And then we take that even further. We know that uh, engaging in nature, being socially engaged with other people, that's really predictive of people being healthy. And we also know that just keep moving. It doesn't really what type of exercise, it's just a little bit more than you did yesterday. So that might be running up a few stairs, it might be walking an extra bus stop, but that really triggers all sorts of good news, anti-inflammatory chemicals and uh, de-stressing hormones when we get the movement modalities right. If you want to be happy and healthy and live to a long age, movement is probably one of the biggest protectors. Mm. And it's the minimal dose is actually much smaller than we realize. One of the studies, they got uh, women in pencil skirts and high seals to run up 20 stairs three times a day in their office environment. You just have to run up 20 stairs, that's it, we'll see what happens. And they found really good predictors of um, some health markers. So the minimal dose is actually really nice. Don't take the lift, take the stairs, things like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and but moving, like dancing is supposed to be very good for the, the kind of choreography and having your brain engaged 
Love that. And it's really social and a lot of fun. Make movement fun. And the best exercise is the exercise you're going to do. So don't say I have to run, do the 10Ks or the marathon. Yeah, great if you want to. But, you know, those things take a lot of time. But do just figure, I'm going to walk a little bit quicker. I'm going to dance a little bit more. I'm going to uh, spend more time with the dog. I don't know. I'm going to borrow the neighbor's dog. Those sort of things, running upstairs, walking extra bus stops, not taking lifts. For some people, some of the older people I work with, it's as simple as don't push on the arms of the chair when you get out of your chair. So use your big thigh muscles. That's a bit of, bit of work, but don't push. And for many people, crawling, moving around on the floor, you know, uh, sitting and standing up from the floor is a really fantastic exercise. So those are simple things people can do at home. Just sort of, you know, crawl with your kids, maybe if you've got kids or if you haven't sat or crawled around I did some crawling in a I like crawling because I did some crawling in a workshop about six seven years ago with a dancer friend of mine and I realized that I hadn't done any crawling since I was 20 the whole of my 30s I hadn't actually crawled that was just devastating actually gosh what happened to me so yeah that sort of stuff is really really simple lovely ordinary movements but gosh you'll be much more flexible much stronger if you just practice getting up and down from the floor so movement is really, really predictive and acting and doing things. I really like that. My other big strategy is keep feeling, keep exploring the flows and movements inside of you. Keep finding new words for the sensations. That bit's really important. We're not really taught very well how to make sense of all the feelings inside of us. So if you have two choices for how you feel, I'm awesome or I'm crappy, basically that's all you can do. I'm just I'm really, really awesome, or I'm really, really crappy. If you have 50 shades of awesome and 50 shades of crappy, you've got 100 choices, but it takes practice. Am I angry? Maybe, maybe you're irritated a little bit. Maybe you're raging. Maybe it's the anger you feel when your partner doesn't respect you, or maybe it's the anger that's slightly different when you're rushing to work and you shout at someone. <gasps> Great, we've now got six types of anger. And if you practice those and differentiate them and learn, you know, my back isn't tight in one or my belly doesn't kick off in another one. All of a sudden, we've got a much bigger emotional range. We've got much more flexibility and we can start spotting and just not having black and white choices, fixed hard choices. We have much more nuance, granulation, much more choice, much more creativity, actually, and much more flexibility. But it takes practice yeah. to learn how to feel and to realize Feelings aren't a beacon of eternal truth. They're a negotiation. Mm. They're always real because they're a perception inside of you. But it doesn't mean they're accurate, useful or true. They're things that need to be negotiated, but we can reframe them, construct it differently. That might need help and support. And often it does. But first of this realize feelings are incredibly important. They're not casual, but also that you can get support to frame them, work with them differently. Become really skillful at not doing what you always did when you feel that scary heartbeat or churning stomach or contraction in your back and saying you're getting old or whatever it is. Exactly. Steve, you've written a couple of books. Anxiety is really tr strange. Trauma is really strange. And pain is really strange. And they're all wonderfully illustrated. Um, it, it's a really interesting way of exploring these topics if you don't really know much about them, I think. 
Yeah, uh, so the idea was comic books. There's actually a wonderful world, which was a bit intimidating before I found out about it, but called graphic medicine, how to explain complex ideas around health with uh, pictures and images. So you might have seen lots of infographics. I'm sure that's in the accountancy numbers world. So often uh, research papers often do better if they have a really good infographic, for example. And I was very influenced by a couple of comic books, Mouse, which you may have heard of, which was, um, it's, oh gosh, 60s or 70s, maybe later, but it was a, a, a comic book around the Holocaust. And it's really famous, M-A-U-S. It's a really, really powerful thing. But this understanding, you could talk about this incredibly serious thing, but use cartoons to illustrate that. And there's actually a whole world out there that I didn't realize, but was very glad to, to make friends with. I was very lucky. I teamed up with a young artist out of college and the idea was 32 pages with pictures, simple explanation of pain. Uh, basically, I was going to do it for my clients, um, just trying to explain. You know, I talk about pain and lecture quite a lot. I found some metaphors I really liked. The smoke detector is one of the metaphors that made it into the book. And just to get her to illustrate that. And yes, they've done really well. I, I, I'm really proud of them. The anxiety one won an award a couple of years ago, the British Medical Association got highly commended, so that made Brilliant. me very happy. And yeah, the idea is complex ideas, but in a simple way, anybody can use uh, and hopefully get some core ideas within an hour of reading. But also there's a lot of depth because there's lots of references at the bottom, so you can, there's stuff to investigate if you want to go a bit deeper. Mm. And the back cover has everything really well referenced as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, the references are important because yeah. I work in alternative medicine and, and there's a little bit of floating and wishful thinking around. So I do think it's quite important to justify what you say. And, you know, these models we've been talking around emotions and feelings are rooted in really good science. Um, we, we understand much more about how feeling our body, how being able to regulate feelings. Those are primary strategies now. In, in all forms of working with trauma. Some people might use talking more as a way in, but one of the primary goals in all trauma work and all anxiety is to help regulate feelings in their body. And that's really wonderful. That strand of research I really like. Uh, emotions are related to bodies and learning to regulate intense feelings help us overcome uh, anxiety, overwhelming experiences, and uh, and also pain, reframing pain. Pain isn't always what we think it is. It isn't. Let's say anxiety is often seen as a problem in the brain. Pain is often seen as a problem in the body. The trick actually is both are about um, complex responses to feelings and that we can choose to reframe them differently. Pain isn't always about structure. It's about complex meanings. And emotions isn't always about meanings. It's also about your body physiology. And uh, feelings is the bridge between the big brain and the body. That's nice. So, Steve, how does somebody connect with you? Uh, Bodycollege.net is, I have a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so, I run training courses. I get people shaking. That's a nice tool that people can use on their own. Um, COVID times, I'm doing less one-to-one -one treatments, but... I will be treating again in London and in Geneva. Those are the two places I, I live and work. But online, there's some really great coaching stuff and uh, have long conversations around people with pain and help them to understand pain more. Pain education is really, really important. And education around anxiety, how it works. And there's some really simple tools you can do to connect that I can teach online. So bodycollege.net is where all my stuff is. You can access the books and 
any training courses I do. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of free resources out there. I, I really like giving out information. Um, and that's part of why I wrote the books is just there's some beautiful ideas. If you understand them, I think they're transformative. I, I think learning to connect to our body is incredibly powerful and has this enormous um, potential to shift things that people don't realize can be shifted. So really gnarly pain experiences can be reframed, panic attacks, anxiety. If we feel safer inside of our body, we're less likely to go to that eight or nine out of 10 as a response that creeps up on us. It kind of hijacks us. You know, that alarm system going off, the really noisy smoke detector just feels out of control at that moment. But we can learn to turn down the sensitivity on that. And that's really beautiful work and um, continues to fascinate me. Great. That's fantastic. And I, I look forward to seeing what's next from you. Yeah, I've got a new book coming out. Touch is really strange. So it'll be the same format, but just exploring the power of touch and why that why body work again by being touched and connecting to our body can help us come out of pain, anxiety and trauma. Fantastic. Sometimes instead of talking about your body, uh, using touch as a way of connecting to your body really celebrating touch works in strange and surprising ways cool i look forward to reading that that's brilliant thank you so much for your time today steve yeah really great to connect again and thanks for uh, inviting me thank you for listening today and if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.